Good morning. If you're a guest with us today, we are really glad to have you. My name is Zach, and I'm one of the pastors here. We're glad that you joined us. We hope you feel welcome with us. And you find us at the front end of a sermon series that I am pretty confident we will finish by the time I retire. Because this year we are preaching through the Bible from start to finish. Because when we look at the whole story of the Bible and all of its beauty and all of its complexity, it allows us to see that God is the main character. God is the storyteller. God is the constant. And seeing the full story helps us understand how God accomplishes his work of redemption. He makes promises. And he invites us to trust him. And yet, if we're honest, therein lies the rub. God makes promises and he invites us to trust him. But that trust isn't always easy. Faith is hard. God's beautiful promises aren't always easy to trust in a broken world. How's your faith? These days, I certainly hope it feels vibrant and alive, but it doesn't always feel that way, does it? Faith is a struggle, and that struggle is most real to us when there are circumstances in life that feel immovable and unfixable. Yes, God invites us to trust in his promises, yet those Disappointments and the pain of life can often feel truer than the promises of God. And if we want to understand this story of redemption that God is telling, then we have to see that if faith is at the very heart of it, then so is doubt. Doubt is inevitable. Mark told me a story this week about Christopher Hitchens. If you don't know who that is, Christopher Hitchens was a baptized Christian, raised in the church. But Christopher would grow up and eventually become probably the most prominent atheist of our time. And I came across some of his quotes this week. And you see a number of the typical arguments that you'd expect an atheist to make. Arguments about reason, evidence, science, philosophy. But there's one quote that stood out above the rest because to me, it gets to the heart of his doubt and his skepticism. But it also gets to the heart of our doubt. He said this, What kind of designer or creator is so wasteful and capricious? What kind of designer or creator is so cruel and indifferent? And most of all, what kind of designer or creator only chooses to reveal himself to peasants in desert regions? I think this statement gets to the heart of all doubt. The doubt of the atheist and the heart of our doubts that we experience as Christians. It's the doubt that comes from placing the extraordinary promises of God inside of an extraordinarily broken world. 
It's the type of doubt that comes from the mysterious ways that God operates in it. Because if we're willing to look and see, we see all the pain and all the heartache of this world, and so easily we can wonder if God is indifferent to suffering. We see the tragedy of this world, and we experience it in our lives, and we wonder, how could he let this happen? God, where are you? God, don't you care? It's hard to trust that he's making all things new as we all sit back and watch the death toll rise of innocents and children and children being bombed in residential buildings without mercy. It's hard to trust that everything is going according to plan as we watch the younger generation walk away from the church. It's hard to believe that God has a plan for your life when one day you wake up and you realize you feel like you've been stuck in a dead-end job for the last 20 years. Or when retirement makes you feel useless. Or when your body starts to give out a lot quicker than you thought. And maybe you don't have as many years as you'd hoped. Trusting in God's promises is hard when it meets the circumstances of life that feel so immovable. And our lives are ones where faith and doubt are strangely woven together. And we are all like that man who said to Jesus, I believe, but help my unbelief. Doubt is inevitable. So if God tells this story by making promises and inviting us to trust him, then how does he accomplish his purposes when we are so prone to doubt and despair? If God desires faith, then how could he melt the heart of the doubtful atheist and the doubting believer? Well, last week we took a walk with Abraham. God called Abraham out of Ur of the Chaldeans, and we walked with Abraham for 1,200 miles as he walked with God to a land he didn't know, but a land that God would show him. God called him to leave a former life behind, and he traveled through the kingdoms of this world, and he eventually arrives in Canaan, this promised land. And when God called Abraham, he did so by making him a promise. He said, Abraham, behold, I will make your name great. I will give you innumerable offspring. I'm going to give you a land that I will show you to possess, and I'm going to make you a blessing to the whole world. That is a ridiculous, incredible, amazing promise. And yet in our passage today, 10 years have passed. A lot of life has happened for Abraham. He went down to Egypt during a famine. He rescued his nephew Lot, who was in captivity. And throughout these years, God has blessed Abraham with incredible wealth. And Abraham knows it. In the last chapter, he told the king of Sodom that it's the Lord Most High who has blessed him and preserved him and kept him. And yet mixed with that profession of faith, doubt is growing beneath the surface. Because a lot of life has happened, but not a lot has changed. Because where is that promised child? And in verse 1, God comes to Abraham And he says, fear not. 
For I will be your shield, and your reward shall be very great. But how does Abraham respond? He says, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. I have no son. The heir of my house isn't even of my own flesh and blood. It's my slave. What could you possibly bless me with if it's just going to go to another? You hear the sadness in Abraham's response. It's a sadness I know some of you have tasted. And we're three chapters into this Abraham story. But these are actually the first recorded words that Abraham speaks to God. We see Abraham speak to his wife. We see Abraham speak to the king of Sodom. We see God speak to Abraham. But these are the first words that we see Abraham speak to God. And what are those words? They are words of doubt and despair. The father of our faith, speaking in the form of lament and sorrow as he wrestles and struggles with the promises of God. Why? Because for Abraham... God's promises have hit an immovable obstacle. God has promised him offspring, but how could that be? Sarah, his wife, is barren. She can't get pregnant. God's promises have met Abraham in the one place that he feels the curse and pain of this world most. Sarah's barrenness of womb has produced a barrenness in his soul. And you have to keep in mind that Abraham, at this point, is in his mid-80s. He's been married for a minute. He's been married for probably 50 years. That's 50 years of disappointment. 50 years of hoping. 50 years of heartache on the regular, month after month, of hearing Sarah say, Not this time, babe. Not this time, babe. That's pain. That's hurt. That's heartache. As you watch others have babies and watch daddies play with their children. And to not have children in Abraham's world meant that you were cursed and you lived in shame and you didn't have a future. So after decades of grief and disappointment, God then comes to Abraham and gives him a promise when he is in Ur, and he says, I'm going to give you innumerable offspring. So after decades of disappointment, you think that promise wasn't deeply personal. How much hope would that give to the one who's barren? The hope that life could finally be different. But Then you fast forward 10 more years, and it was just more of the same. Disappointment, month after month, year after year, that probably started to suffocate that hope that he felt at the very beginning. And strangely enough, I would imagine that in his darker moments, God's promises felt like a cruelty. God, where are you? How can your promises be true? Abraham is struggling between two different futures. The beautiful one that God promised him yet remains unfulfilled. 
and the barren one that his circumstances say is certain. And Abraham cries out to God in a way where faith and doubt are woven together. His doubt is not because he doesn't believe in God. No, it's the struggle of faith, seeking understanding. He vocalizes his doubt because faith is hard when God's promises slam into the pain and the sorrow and the circumstances of life in a cursed world. Is your doubt any different when God's promises slam into the hardships of your life? Abraham speaks for us all when he cries out to God where his faith and doubt are woven together. You desire to trust in God's provision, yet your business or your job feels like it's imploding. You cling to the hope that God's promises are for you and for your children, but you see your children resistant to the faith and show no interest in the church. You long for God's intervention in a place in your life that feels so personal and so precious, in a place where the obstacles feel so immovable and you feel so helpless to do anything about it. And we see from the very beginning with Abraham that if faith is at the heart of this story, then in some strange manner, so is doubt. Because sooner or later, there will be circumstances that feel truer than God's promises to you. Doubt is inevitable. That's us. But what about God? What does this story teach us about him? How does he engage Abraham in this moment? Well, the truth is, he's the one who orchestrated it. When God called Abraham and made him that promise all those years before, he was not unaware of Sarah's barrenness. Abraham isn't telling him something he didn't know. He doesn't say, oh my goodness, I had no idea. I must have chosen the wrong man. No, he knew exactly what he was doing. He knew exactly whom he had chosen. And he made his promise to Abraham, but then what? He waited. He waited 10 years, and he let those promises hang in the air. He waited. He waited until those circumstances felt immovable and certain. He waited until those circumstances started to call his promises to question deep in Abraham's heart. He waited until the sorrow and the longing brought Abraham to a place of vexation and doubt and searching for understanding. He waited until Abraham was at his weakest. Why? Because this is where God meets with his people. This is where God meets with his people. When the troubles of this life feel like they're too much. When the bitterness of this world feel as hard as granite. This is where God meets with his people. This is where God will meet with you. And if you remember back in Genesis 3... When we looked at the fall, we saw how God introduced pain into this world and cursed the most precious areas of our lives, but not out of cruelty. 
is out of his grace. Because when else is it that we cry out to him but in our pain? When else is it that we cry out but when we feel the hurt and the heartache of this world? When else is it but in our desperation do we cry out for his intervention? When else is our desire for him the most real within us but in our pain? This is where God meets with his people over and over and over again. And it's just that we're seeing this play out in real time with Abraham. God waited until he was at his weakest so that he might reveal his power, his strength, and his goodness. And the way that we see God respond to Abraham in this moment is simply one of the most beautiful moments you will find in the entire Bible. If the Old Testament had a heart, this is it. God didn't respond to Abraham with anger and shame. He didn't say, you worthless little fool. How dare you not trust me? Don't you know who I am? No, he's gentle. He's patient. Because he's been waiting for this moment. Waiting for this moment when Abraham would cry out to him so that he could show himself to Abraham unlike anything else he had done before. God comes to Abraham and he says, No, Abraham, Eleazar will not be your heir. Your very own son, your own flesh and blood, shall be your heir. And he says, I want you to take another walk with me. He brings Abraham outside under a night sky with no light pollution and stars that would seem like they went on forever. And he says, Abraham, look up at the stars and number them if you're able. Count them if you can. So shall your offspring be. So shall your offspring be. And this is a powerful moment. Because in a former life, before God called Abraham, Abraham was probably a stargazer. He worshipped the stars. He was from Chaldea, and that's what Chaldeans did. They were stargazers. So when he has Abraham look up, what's he doing? I think in part he's reminding him of his former life, the life that he once lived. He's using something familiar to Abraham to communicate something new to Abraham and reorienting his life around new promises because the doubter needs a reminder. Did these stars ever speak to you, Abraham? Did these stars ever make promises to you? Will these stars give you the desires of your heart? You remember that life you lived before I entered into it? You could always go back to that old life, but have I not been faithful? And I think he's bringing Abraham to the place that he brings all strugglers and all doubters. He's bringing him to the place where we realize that even though trusting him can be so hard, a life that's oriented around his promises is far better than one that's not. Because there is an irresistible kindness and hope in those promises that make them so hard to let go of. Struggling with those promises is far more precious 
than never struggling at all. And as Abraham is looking at those stars, something happened. Abraham believed God. He believed God. And on the outside, nothing had changed. Nothing whatsoever. The circumstances were the exact same. He was still getting up there in age. Sarah's still barren. But on the inside, everything changed. He looked beyond his circumstances and he saw this God who was faithful to him. And in his heart, he said, I trust you. I believe you. I believe that you're going to do what you say. And it was to all that doubt that God brought Abraham to a deeper trust in him. So what is faith? Sometimes faith is doubting your doubts. When nothing has changed, when everything is the exact same, it's doubting the future that your circumstances say is certain and doubting what they say to be true. And it's saying, I don't know how, I don't know, I don't know why, but I trust you. I believe you and I lay aside my doubts and I orient my life according to your promises. And it was through the doubt that faith had broken into Abraham's heart in a new way that he'd never known before. And faith like that motivates one to action. To give their life to these promises. Which is why when God then says, Abraham, I'm also going to give you this land to possess. Abraham responds by saying, okay, but how am I to know that I will possess it? He's asking God, what can I do? What would you have me do? What do you require of me? Because you have to remember this land that God is talking about, this land that God promised Abraham is not vacant. It's not empty. It's actually prime real estate. And in the previous chapter, nine kings just went to war with each other down the street. So Abraham is saying, what would you have me do? And then God tells Abraham, he says, bring me a cow, a goat, a ram, and two birds. It's a seemingly strange response to us. But this is not strange to Abraham. Abraham knows exactly what God is asking him to do. It's why he doesn't need to be told to cut each of these animals in half. Abraham just automatically does it. He gets the animals, he cuts them in half, and then he lays all the carcasses in two bloody, gory piles side by side. So what are we seeing? What does Abraham know that we don't? He knows they're about to make a covenant. And a covenant is a formalized promise between two parties. You have to remember that in the ancient world, they didn't have pen and paper to make contracts. They didn't have debt collection agencies. Couldn't freeze anybody's assets. So how could someone be held accountable how could you guarantee that someone would hold up their end of the agreement? Well, you made a covenant. And so you take these animals, you'd cut them in half, and then the stipulations of that covenant, that agreement would be agreed upon. And then to seal that covenant, you'd walk between the two piles and all the gore and all the filth and all the blood. And this was a symbolic act 
It was a symbolic way of acting out the consequences of the covenant if it was broken. Because passing through between those two piles meant that you were saying, if I don't hold up my end of the agreement, I forfeit my life. If I don't do what's required of me, then I will be made like these animals, and I will be cut off from the land of the living. This is how we'll be doing membership vows at Rockwell Press from now on. It's biblical. Elvira, Randy, Mary, you barely made it through. Be sure to sign up for the next intro class on May 14th. And typically, these covenants would be made between a greater and a lesser party. So if one king would, make, would conquer another king and demand his allegiance, they would make a covenant. The terms would be set for tribute, for taxes, for military support. And then the lesser king would offer his devotion to the greater by passing through the piles. It wasn't the greater party. It was the lesser party who expressed their devotion and their commitment and they passed through. So Abraham knows exactly what God is asking. He gets everything ready. His faith is rejuvenated. And he's ready to do whatever it is that God will ask of him to do. And he will show his devotion. And he will pass through. But that's not what happens. Abraham gets everything ready. And then God puts him into a deep and mysterious sleep. And when the sun went down, a great and terrible darkness fell upon the land. And out of the darkness, God appears as a smoking fire pot and a flaming fire. The two symbols of God's presence in the Old Testament. God steps into the darkness and then the most shocking thing of all happens. It's not Abraham the lesser who passes through. It's God the greater. God is the only one who passes through. So what does that mean? What is God doing? He enters into this covenant promise by saying that he will bear the consequences if he fails. But he will also bear the consequences if Abraham or his descendants fail. God takes the full responsibility of both parties. He says, Abraham, my life for yours. I will keep these promises at the cost of my own life. That's it. And you know, God could have just as easily have done this when he first called Abraham. But he didn't. He waited. He waited, and after all of these years, he waited until Abraham was at his weakest, and he cried out in his doubt and his vexation, and that's when God revealed himself in the most extraordinary way to Abraham. And that's when Abraham found a God whose commitment to his promises and his people is immovable. Christopher Hitchens died in 2011 from esophageal cancer. 
And he continued to travel and speak and debate as long as he possibly could. But as he was nearing the end of his life, he wanted to go on one last road trip. He wanted to go on a long walk, if you will. He'd never traveled through the Shenandoah Valley, so he made a phone call to a friend and asked this friend to join him on this road trip. And that friend was a man named Larry Taunton. And Larry is an evangelical Christian writer. And he debated Hitchens over the years, a bunch of different times. And over this period, they'd actually developed a genuine friendship with one another. And of all people, this was who Christopher called for a 780-mile journey in the Shenandoah Valley. And they got on the road, and Hitchens said, Hey, where's the good book? For some reason, he wanted to get the Bible out and start reading it. So they started reading the Gospel of John from the King James Version with all the these and the thous because it was Christopher's favorite. And as they would take turns reading to each other, surprisingly, Christopher would stop at certain points and he'd still quote large sections of whatever came next because he still remembered all of those portions from having memorized them as a child. And they came to the verse... It says, for the law came through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Christopher just stopped and said, man, that's just it. I see the idea of grace in the New Testament. But God is different in the Old Testament. I don't see any grace. And he'd already written in his career what kind of God is so cruel, capricious, cold and indifferent. So Larry responded and he asked, well, do you remember the story of Abraham where he divided up the animals? Christopher said, yes, I do remember it. It's a very macabre scene. And Larry said, well, turn to Genesis 15 and start reading it. So Christopher turned to Genesis 15 and he read the chapter and then he said, I don't understand. And Larry said, don't you though? God's the only one who passes through. He's taking on the full responsibility of his covenant promises with his people. He enters into an agreement and he promises that he would forfeit his life if he broke it, but also if they broke it. Because he knows we're prone to doubt. He knows we're prone to despair. He knows we're prone to weakness and he knows that we are covenant breakers not covenant keepers. God put his own life on the table to keep his promises. And Christopher said, that's grace. And Larry responded, that's grace. And they drove in silence for quite a while, and then they started reading again, and they came upon Jesus' words to Martha in the King James, I am the resurrection and the life. He that believeth in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. And whosoever liveth and believeth in me shall never die. Believest thou this, Martha? Then Christopher stops. He says, do you believest thou this, Larry? And Larry said, with all my heart. Do you believest thou this, Christopher? And after a long pause, he said, well, I'll admit that for a man facing death, it sounds awfully appealing. 
And that was the last time Larry saw Christopher. He died three months later. And Larry doesn't know what happened in Christopher's heart that, that day. But this story was enough to silence the doubter for a moment as he looked out the window across the landscape and made him lose himself in his own thoughts. We're in the darkness of his own doubt as he is facing the immovable circumstance of death. He was introduced to this God who makes promises, a God of unimaginable love and grace. And I would imagine that in some way, Christopher Silence was wrestling with the reality that he'd spent a lifetime arguing against a God that in the end was the orchestrator of the most beautiful story you will find on the planet. Because he knew good and well that there is no other story like this one. There's no other God who makes promises like this. It's either this God or there is no other. And perhaps it was a moment he started to doubt his own doubts. As he wrestled with the story of a God who makes promises and keeps them. And he certainly kept this promise to Abraham. Because at the crucifixion, as Jesus hung on the cross, a thick darkness once again settled on the land. And oftentimes you hear this darkness be explained as this is when the Father turned his back on Jesus. Because Jesus can't look at sin, or the Father can't look upon sin, and so he removes himself. No. No, this is the Father coming close. Why? Because this is when Jesus starts to talk to him. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In all of his agonizing despair, his darkness is God fulfilling his covenant promise. It's God the Father and God the Son making good on their promise to Abraham, to you, and to me. Because he's the God who makes promises and he keeps them. So do you feel the struggle of doubt this morning? Do life circumstances feel so heavy and immovable and that doubt makes God's promises feel like a fairy tale? If so, that is okay. It's how God tells his story. And it's where God meets with his people. Your problem is not that you have doubts. Your greatest problem will be not voicing them. It's when that doubt keeps you silent and it starts to create a cynicism and despair in your heart. And instead, this story from the very beginning invites you to let your faith and your hope, however small and however insignificant it may feel, to give voice to those doubts and to cry out to God, because this story is your story. So perhaps just like in this story, God has been waiting. Waiting until that moment when you were at your weakest, so that you may cry out to him and he might reveal himself to you in a way that you never knew, a way you never imagined, in a way that you never thought possible.
and you will find a God whose promise and commitment to you is immovable. God has made promises to you and he keeps them. My beloved friends and family, do you believest thou this? Let's pray.